Welcome to a very special episode of Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and I am joined by two neighbors in Idaho. They have a podcast about opera, which I'm going to let them tell you about. But please welcome Evan Dunn and Mariah Wilcox. Hi, guys. Thank you. Hello. (laughs) Thanks for having us. Thank you for reaching out to me and letting me know about our shared interest. Tell us about the podcast that you have. And and by the way, I'm going to make you work because this is not just a discussion of podcasts. We are also going to get to the opera Susanna for the bulk of the show. But tell us about your podcast. Well... Um, We kind of started it because we're both singers and we've both kind of been through the industry of being an artist and know how just difficult and discouraging it can be sometimes. But we're both, we've made it through to the other side, so to speak, and we just really wanted to find a way to help others and empower and encourage other young artists. So that's basically why we started it. Fabulous. Yeah, being a singer can be so challenging because we often feel powerless to take control of what we do. Everyone tells us what we should do and how we should do it. Yeah. And we really wanted to tell singers that you're not just blowing in the wind. You can. (laughs) You can take control. Yeah. And especially uh, if you've listened to our podcast you'll realize that we talk a lot about self-care and emotional health and how we kind of have this mental fortitude as singers. We have to build that within ourselves and we're, we're not reliant on someone else to do it for us. So yeah. we have to do No it. one can do that mm-hmm. for us. So yeah. that's like the number one important thing as a, as a singer, I think. And remind us the name of your podcast. It's Take the Stage Opera. <laughs> Take the Stage Opera Podcast. Yep. Yeah, it's fabulous. I've listened to a number of episodes and it's so encouraging. And I promise you, I'm not a singer, but I find a lot of encouraging moments in your conversations with people and also insights into what you're going through as singers. I can't imagine because I'm guessing, I'm imagining from what you have to do, you typically need a music impresario for lack of a better word you need you need Mm. someone who's putting on a production or you need a director or you know in the case of an opera it's a whole big deal but I, I realize there are things like recitals and whatnot too yeah yeah that's important but also singers you know more and more are realizing that we can put on our own shows if we're if we have a lot of gumption and a lot of grit we get people around us we've got friends and we can put on our own productions but in order to <laughs> make money it is helpful to have <laughs> a yes. production you know a system already in place where that can happen <laughs> absolutely well would you mind each of you telling us a little bit about how you became opera singers but by the way this is a first for opera for everyone we've never actually oh. had a couple of singers who have had time to stay with me and tell me about your career and then walk us through an opera that you've both participated in. So I'm beyond thrilled um, <laughs> to have you both here. So tell us how you got in. Mariah, let's start with you. How did okay. you get, how did you become an opera singer? <laughs> um, so I always knew I wanted to be a singer from a really young age, but you know, when I was a child, 
um, American Idol had just come out and I was like fully intent on winning American Idol as soon as I turned 16. <laughs> um, but I, I literally, I like turned the age that you could audition for American Idol and it was right before then I had heard somebody singing opera just like in the choir room in my high school. And I was like, oh, like screw American Idol. This is what I want to do. <laughs> Like, that is the most beautiful thing I have ever heard. And so even though I, like, knew absolutely nothing about opera from the time, like, I was 15, I've just wanted to be an opera singer. So it was 15 years old in the choir room Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. changed the singing course for you. Yeah. (sighs) Yeah. And I don't know that I would have, like, become even a musician had I decided to stay on, like, a pop (laughs) music track because I don't think I would have done well there so I think it was you know some enlightenment to my 15 year old self but yeah I went on to college and uh, got my undergraduate degree in music and then went on to do a couple of young artist programs and um, then got my master's and I just recently graduated I guess it's been two years now because of the pandemic it still feels recent because I've done nothing <laughs> <Yeah>. this year. <laughs> Time is, is measured differently now, but congratulations on the on that. That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. How about you, Evan? So I grew up loving classical music. My mom had taught us to play the piano. And there, you know, I had older siblings. And I remember going to concerts and just loving classical music, which is so funny because as an adult, I, I just think in my head that everyone hates classical music, but there must oh, no. be other, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I think that there must be other little children out there who love classical music just like I did and that I could reach out to them in some way. But yeah, so I, I thought maybe I'd be a pianist or I, I played the bass in orchestra. I thought maybe I'd do that or be an orchestra teacher. And I ended up settling on being a choir teacher Ah. when I went to my undergrad and was loving that. But then when I taught in the public schools, I loved my students and I loved the music, but I just felt like something was missing. And I had a teacher who kept saying, you need to sing opera, you need to sing opera. And finally I listened to her and did a little (laughs) opera scene and it just kind of overwhelmed me and actually my first role was Olin Blitch in Susanna no kidding oh amazing which was a little over my head (laughs) that's a huge thing and so but I don't think of that I mean you were a young man doing that I'm guessing you know no well I think I was 26 years old, so I got into opera a little bit late. I was probably 26 or 27 years old. Well, for the rest of the world, that seems like a young man, so. (laughs) 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 And what was your first role, Mariah? Or or a role you'd like to recall? My first role was um, Doreen in Tartuffe by Kirk Meacham, which is another like 20th century American opera. Mm. Um, it is definitely not my Fach. It wasn't even my Fach then. It was, it's like a soubrette role, and I've always been a lyric. But it was, it was a good time. I just got to be drunk on stage the entire time, which was definitely my jam. So Perfect. Oh, that's wonderful. All right. So since I have two singers on here, let's get a good answer. This is not personal, I'm sorry, but soprano, you mentioned a lyric. Could you talk yeah. to us a little bit about the soprano voices and then we're going to get to the baritones. 
<laughs> sure. Um, so the soprano voices are divided up into categories, basically. And you can kind of like bleed over into other categories, but it's based on like the size and weight of your voice and what what you're particularly good at doing. So there are color tour sopranos, which sing really high and really quickly. Um, and then there's lyric sopranos that are um, really just, they're like the warm, medium-sized voices that do a lot of legato work and, um, but like high legato work, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then you get into heavier uh, categories like a dramatic soprano or a spinto soprano. There's also a dramatic coloratura soprano, mm-hmm. which is uh, crazy crazy fuck but um <laughs> yeah <laughs> they just kind of they started the smallest at soubrette which is what all of the maids basically are all soubrettes and oh. operas and then most of the main characters are going to be lyrics or uh, bigger fuck could you explain fuck yes so <laughs> fuck is the fuck system is the way germany basically decided to categorize singers. So Fach in German means category. And so if you I work... I think it's like if you get your major in college, it's called your Fach. Oh, really? So, I mean, I'm, I don't mean that it means major, but it's, yeah, it's like your specialization, your oh, category, okay. you know? Yeah, yeah. And so when you work in the German Fach system, they can hire you as a specific soprano. So if they hired me as a lyric, they would give me all of the lyric roles... Plus, they can go one fach above, so they could give me, like, I don't know, spinto rolls. But they could also give me one fach below, which is... Would be, like, a lyric coloratura. Yeah. That's a little scary. Ish. <laughs> we, Ish. we gathered that from what you said before. And, and is this similar for baritones? Yeah, so there's lyric baritones, which is kind of a lighter, higher baritone, cavalier baritone held in baritone bass baritone so yeah um and again i've sung roles from all of those fox and um <laughs> also i've sung some bassier roles that are like below baritone but i consider myself like a cavalier baritone which is like a hero- kind of uh, a heroic kind baritone. of like a heroic baritone i mean that would be more like held in baritone right. but i'm kind of right in between there i would say well cavalier sounds like you know a very cool place to be. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it says in the description that you're supposed to be like handsome and tall. <laughs> Which you are. Oh, Evan. wow. <laughs> it's so interesting that, that it's a physical yes. description, not just a voice quality description. Yeah, many that of us would say that's, un- yeah, that's a little unfortunate, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because a lot of people, like when I was younger, I'm... Um, I'm bigger, I'm plus-sized, and so a lot of people just put me in the dramatic soprano category, which I am not, and definitely was not when I was younger. And that was really difficult, because my voice did not want to sing those bigger roles, but they were given to me. So can you talk a little bit about what kind of work you're doing in music now, besides your wonderful Take the Stage Opera podcast? Yeah, we both have some voice students, and of course we you know, have had some gigs and performing and traveling. Uh, We're both currently living in southeast Idaho, which actually has turned out to be an okay place for us to be for... Yeah, especially during the pandemic. During this pandemic, you know, we can live cheaply. And 
now it's nice because we can still study with our teachers and coaches online. Isn't that amazing? Um, yeah. Yeah. So we don't have to live in New York City. We can live here and work with whoever we want. But then we travel for gigs. And of course, gigs have been very sparse over yeah. the last year. But <laughs> I think I've had like two since the pandemic started. But yes. And simpler, you know. Right. There were like recitals and things, not sure. full productions. Sure. One of the links that Evan sent me was of a, a YouTube clip and I thought well how old is this but then of course the pianist was wearing a mask and I'm like oh well it's recent <laughs> <laughs> yep. well speaking of which I thought it might be nice before we launch into Susanna to hear a little bit of your work and since I referenced Evans could you introduce the the clip that you sent me and and then we'll listen to it sure I sent a clip of Pietà Signore the composer is very often said to be Stradella, but I think it's probably wrongfully attributed to him from the research that I can tell. Yes. So an unknown composer, but from the 17th century, and it's a piece that's very commonly given to young singers. And so while I was doing some technical work, because I didn't have performances during the pandemic, I picked up some of these I hesitate to say simpler art song type pieces, but songs that we give to younger singers to really work on some technical work. And it was a joy to... Yeah, I've picked them up too just for fun. Yeah. Like I love singing all of those 24 Italian art songs and arias, so... Wait, yeah, that, that sounds like a thing that we're supposed to know, the 24 Italian <gasps> art songs. It's, um, it's like an anthology, basically, of mostly Baroque, some classical art songs and arias. And every every freshman in any music school in the world probably owns this book. I think I own like four of them. <laughs> it's like when you're being trained to be a painter, you have to do certain mm. things, I imagine. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing. Yeah. Out of my field. <laughs> on, bo on both spots. Um, so let's listen to Evan Dunn singing Piazza Signore. Signor Pietro 
was Evan Dunn, one of our guests, singing Piata Signore by an unknown composer. Evan, exquisite, exquisite. Tell us a little bit about what's going on in that in that song. Thank you. Yes. So I really imagine it's somebody who is actually singing to Jesus Christ, like singing to the Lord. And, you know, I've heard of some singers who imagine that they're like the woman who's taken in adultery, the biblical story, or somebody who feels like they're in need of a lot of help. They're just, their life is not going the way that they imagine. So I imagine someone who's in a lot of pain, who's crying out for help in a prayer-like way. I like to imagine that he's actually there, just like he would have been there for the woman taken in adultery. Yeah, a prayer song, which is not an uncommon oh, no. type of song to have in the operatic repertoire. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sure. It just works. <laughs> yeah, in fact, we'll listen to a prayer that Blitch gives mm-hmm. in Susanna, and that's another song that I have in my repertoire that I really love. Oh, good. Well, we'll, we'll get to that for sure. But <laughs> <laughs> Mariah, you have a clip for us also of some work that you did, and it is just charming. Tell Thank us you. about the clip you brought. Um, so I have I Want Magic, which is from the opera Streetcar Named Desire. It's a, a 20th century American opera and yeah. the first, I guess, one of the first arias that I ever really learned and like kept in my audition repertoire for a while. Well, let's hear Mariah singing I Want Magic. <laughs> Thank you. 
singing I Want Magic here on Opera for Everyone. Mariah, spectacular. I was so charmed by that rendition, by that song. Thank you. Yeah, that's one, it's one of my very favorite arias to sing. Have you done it in a show before or do you just do it as a, a piece to present? Just as um, just as a piece to present, I've never done the opera. I would really love to. It's definitely a dream role of mine. Um, but yeah, and I actually don't sing it much anymore. I've replaced it with another American 20th century aria. But she yeah. only sings 20th century American it is, opera. American 20th century opera is kind of what I wish I could specialize in. If mm-hmm. singers could specialize in things, but <laughs> yeah. That's perfect segue. Let's talk a little bit about American opera. Yeah. Yay! Yay, American (laughs) opera. And is most American opera 20th century American opera? (laughs) Yeah. I'm trying to think if there are any before that. I'm sure sure there are some, but not probably any in the standard repertoire. Right. Right. Because America was just getting on its feet at the end of the 1700s. So really, the 1800s, there wasn't a lot going on yeah I'm sure there are some charming works but they're probably very European in style right well also I mean from a historical perspective the people who had money who could patronize Mm -hmm. the arts who could afford opera tickets the culture any culture that was worth having was European right (laughs) yes exactly maybe with an infusion of exoticism from some other land right but but if it was if it was worth having it was European and it wasn't really until the 20th century I believe that America you know the 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 the, the moneyed classes the people who are supporting and um, buying opera tickets which were then and still are some of the more expensive entertainment tickets. Right. Um, it took a while for them to say, oh, no, we can we can do some stuff on our own. In fact, I'm I'm thinking of uh, Puccini, who did his American opera. Puccini, yes. of course, the famous Italian composer yeah. who did yes. The Girl of the Golden West, but he premieres it in New York about yeah. the Golden West. I mean, you don't want to carry it too far and premiere it. (laughs) But he did it in New York. And, um, and I think it took a while for America. But my goodness, as I was looking Mm -hmm. into this, there are a lot of American operas that we just don't see that often. Mm -hmm. Sure. And luckily, the people going to the operas and how that was kind of an expensive, um, you know, it was seen as being the elite Mm -hmm. form of entertainment. Luckily, nowadays, we're starting to realize that not all good art comes from 
white men in Europe, right? Like yeah. there's there's so much amazing music and culture. And I think singers are starting to demand that that type of music be heard. And it's in, yesterday was International Women's Day yes. and the Met was supposedly celebrating that for this month, but they didn't have a single work published by, by women. Woman. Luckily, we're starting to see a change of still celebrating music that we've loved for centuries, but also that there are other types mm-hmm. of music as well. Yeah. Do you feel like when you are approaching an opera uh, or a piece from an opera that you can tell or you, there's a different quality to an American composer versus a European composer? Yeah. I feel like in a lot of American operas, there's a huge influence of the music that was happening in America at the time. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of jazz influences. There's a lot of like soul and like gospel type of influences. Or like Appalachian. Yeah, exactly. Folk folk songs Mm -hmm. and things. When I performed Aaron Copland's The Tenderland, Mm -hmm. and supposedly it was the European debut, I don't know, but... (laughs) 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 <laughs> it was really, really fancy. So I was in Bulgaria, and the orchestra was a house orchestra, and they hated it. <laughs> they oh, hated. No. They oh, hated. No. Perf- <laughs> they Why? hated performing. Well, it's American music, it's all American folk songs, and it just doesn't feel, you know, like Puccini, or it doesn't feel like Verdi. Yeah, it doesn't feel grand and elite. You know, it's very like the people's type of music. Yeah, there's like a lot of trumpets and da-da-da-da. It just kind of feels like country hoedown music. And they performed quite well as we rehearsed, but on the night opening night of the performance, they just at some point started collapsing down and ended up stopping playing. And I oh, don't know. no. And as the story goes, they just decided they didn't like it, and so they weren't going to play it. But there is, with, there's I'm such, sorry, with people sitting in the audience, they just with, wound down and stopped? With people sitting in the audience. And people say that singers are the divas. Like, <laughs> oh, my goodness. There's the, the, the concept that they wind down and just stop. Like, it's just jaw-dropping. The conductor literally put his arms down after a while. <laughs> but it was really interesting to play with an orchestra in Europe where they felt like it wasn't their type of music you know they could definitely tell but because we're going to talk about folk song a little bit in opera because it does come up in Susanna American composers aren't the only people who borrow from the folk song vernacular of their own region yeah absolutely I mean I'm thinking of I mean this is Czech but I'm thinking of Janacek yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and uh, Rusalka. Yes. And well, yeah. I mean, you have to. The music isn't born in a vacuum for right. the most part. It comes and is inspired from somewhere. But you know, American music it just had such a different culture because of the Western feel and all of that. So it just kind of I think it turns some people off who who like a more classical or romantic feel to their music. <laughs> I mean, I almost feel like that's an extension of the idea that I was talking about 19th century Americans having, where it wasn't believed that real culture could exist in America. Right. And Exactly. You know, Americans kind of got over that a little more quickly than other people. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I think now we should turn to our featured opera, an opera that was suggested to me by Evan. Evan, tell us about Susanna. Susanna is an opera. It was composed by Carlisle Floyd in 1956, and it premiered at Florida State University. And it comes from the apocryphal story of Susanna, but with some changes, obviously. Yeah, the apocrypha has a happy ending, whereas the opera does not. (laughs) Yeah, that's from the book of Daniel, and it has the happy Mm -hmm. ending because Daniel is a judge who sets things right. And in the case of the opera, there's no one to set things right. Yep. Yeah, that's Susanna and the Elders is typically how it's referred to. And Mm -hmm. it it is a dare I say, shockingly frequent subject for artists. Yes. I, yes, it is. <laughs> Mariah says knowingly. <laughs> yes, I've played a few of them. <laughs> mm. it's, it's interesting because I saw that Handel had written an oratorio. Really? Susanna, it's called. It was English language during the long period when he lived in London. I did not know that. That's amazing. Oh, I loved research. Wow. <laughs> we love that you love yeah. research, too. I do. I do. It's, yeah, I enjoy it. And there's one from right. the prior century by a composer whose name escapes me. And then there's all the visual art of Susanna and the Elders. Sure. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I suppose I shouldn't be surprised that it was a popular topic because if you're going to depict it in art, you get a beautiful naked woman mm-hmm. and you have two men looking at her with ill intent yeah I actually the first time I ever saw a piece of art of Susanna I was in Paris at the Musée d'Orsay and it's just this huge piece of artwork it's probably 12 feet tall by like like 16 feet wide and it just was it was shocking to me yes. and I I didn't even know what it was until I like read the title of it, but they're beautiful pieces of art, but they do very well. It did very well depict what happened with Susanna. Yeah, just a, just a brief recap of the story from the Apocrypha, the book of Daniel 13. It's a story about a woman who's a married woman, in fact, young woman who's married. And the book tells us that she's righteous. Her parents have brought her up to be well-trained in spiritual practice in Mosaic Law, and she knows right from wrong. But I'll save some of the to's and fro's, but essentially when she sends her maid off to get something that she needs because she's going to bathe in her locked garden, Mm -hmm. these two elders come in and watch her. And they they go away and they, they see each other, and they're both being lustful towards her they realize, oh no, I've seen him, he's seen me, what are we going to do? Well, what do you do? You blame it on the woman. Of course you do. Let's just go back right to Eve, right? It's an old story. (laughs) And they, they, they blame it on her, and she's about to be executed for her improper behavior until Daniel intervenes. And it's clever because he separates the the two men and their stories don't match up Mm. and therefore she's exonerated and it's interesting because that is a tactic used to this very day in investigations you separate the people and if their stories don't line up you can sometimes figure out where the truth is or at least where it isn't right and that's interesting that you brought up how they blame the women like what else do they do one of the themes of Susanna the opera 
is feminism a little bit. You know, I think that it was probably early feminism because it was composed in 1956. But I think that there is a thread of that. Absolutely. Yeah, well, I agree. I I would say you don't even have to say early feminism, but a but a feminism that might be <laughs> earlier than the one we're familiar with, because I think yeah. you can actually look at sure. a lot of books and stories and even operas and see moments of feminism. I mean, you yes. think of she's a Susanna too in Marriage of Figaro. Mm-hmm. She's yeah. a little mm-hmm. bit feminist herself. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of strong female characters, but there's also a lot of misogyny in opera, which I think we deal with that as characters. We deal with these kind of tough stories to tell, but I think they're still important stories to tell as long as we're learning from them. Yeah, and I think that this is probably one of the first, maybe not one of the first, but it's one of the bigger operas that does show misogyny, but not in a good light. (laughs) You know, and... When Evan says you have to deal with a lot, what was running through my head was that, yeah, you sure do, you baritone. Yeah. (laughs) I'm so sad, but I love the baritone voice, but the roles in operas oftentimes are not nice men. No, and it's so funny because, I mean, people know me as just kind of being like... A really nice... (laughs) I just, I'm just kind of, I don't know that I have a mean bone in my body, really. But I get to play all of these evil villains, and it's so fun. Yeah. All right. Well, (laughs) (laughs) that's excellent. (laughs) Let's set the scene for the beginning of Susanna. Now that we've, um, we always, we have a saying here at Opera for Everyone, there are no spoilers in opera. Because the more you know about it, the more you enjoy it as you go along. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I mean, they don't print the synopsis in the programs for nothing, right? They want you right. to be ready. But but I would argue you should be ready before you have the program in your hand because it's it's more fun. Just listen yeah. to Opera for Everyone and you get ready. Yes. Oh, seriously. See. Seriously, I've done, it. I've done it with a few different episodes before I watch an opera and I'm like, how come I didn't always have this? This yeah. is great. Oh, that, that makes me very happy. That is, you know, I, I never envisioned performers thinking about it that way because I I wanted to lower those barriers with all that the accessibility of opera I want to encourage people to give it a try because it does have a little um, concern for some people that it might not be interesting to them because they're not familiar with it sure and you'd be surprised how often singers we go and prepare musically but some of us might forget to be prepared contextually and historically to which I think is such an important aspect of preparing a role yeah like you need to know really like the underlying themes of things to really be able to portray a character correctly because you're not just singers you're actors right exactly yeah I mean that's part of why I love opera it's just it's all of it it's the it's the orchestra it's the voice it's the acting it's the sets it's the lighting the dance oh yes 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 it's it's just hmm, magical I want magic. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Susanna opens, and it's set in the present time, we're told, in the libretto, which means Mm -hmm. the mid-50s. But we never leave this little valley of rural Tennessee. We're there from start to finish. In fact, not leaving is is part of what's going on in the end Mm -hmm. of this plot. Mm-hmm. But we open on a church social. Yeah, exactly. You want to describe that scene for us? Well, for the production that I did, what I 
envisioned was dancing, kids running around, lemonade, it's hot outside, ladies sitting in a corner gossiping, the men standing on the other side. They're the elders of the church and they're talking and they're waiting a new preacher who's supposed to be coming into town. Yeah. And even though I feel like the elders are not really supposed to be dancing with anyone because they're all married, most of them take turns with Susanna dancing. Oh yeah, no, that's true. And Susanna, she's not exactly like all the other women on the stage. No, she's described as being like the most beautiful girl you've ever seen, but she's very, um, very hillbilly. She was raised basically by her brother. They didn't have a lot of uh, money at all. So she, she's just very, I guess, primitive to the other people, even though they all live in the valley in Tennessee. And another way to say that might be she's, she doesn't have as many layers of reserve around her. Right, yes. She's uninhibited. She she likes the music. She mm-hmm. enjoys dancing. She's having yes. a good time. She likes bright colors. Her clothes might be brighter because she likes it. It's pretty. Yes. And, and she's an 18-year-old girl. And she right. wants to dance and have a good time. Yeah. And the men seem to find that attractive. But mm-hmm. in this first song that we're going to listen to, the women particularly the wives of the elders, Mm -hmm. are gossiping. Are jealous. Where we can listen in. Yes. (laughs) Yep. It's a hot night for dancing. Ain't no breeze stir. They're too easy. Hold all day. It's sure mystery. It's sure mystery.
opera for everyone and we're listening to the opera Susanna by Carlisle Floyd and I am joined by two opera singers and opera podcasters Mariah Wilcox and Evan Dunn hosts of Take the Stage the opera podcast. Well Susanna's having a good time at the dance but the the ladies will gossip they will talk. Yes (laughs) yeah and they say something so poignant it just it's almost shocking they say it's a blessing her ma can't see her And you just think, I mean, because Susanna's parents have died. And to these women watching, they're feeling a little jealous and also self-righteous, right? But they're saying, in effect, that it's better that her mom is dead than that she see her daughter in this sinful state. And as somebody watching the scene as an audience member, are we seeing... Sin? <laughs> no, you're seeing a girl dancing. Yeah, that's it. It's just, and lots of people dancing, not just Susanna. But they say that there's a look in her eyes. They just they've decided already that you know she's sinful. Yeah, she's sinful, and they say she'll come to no good. Mark my words. So I think if you're seeing this scene without hearing any of the words from the songs, you see a young girl dancing and having a good time she is an innocent she's an absolute innocent and then you see these men mostly older married to these women gossiping who might even have children her age yeah and they're all watching her and they're all gravitating towards her they're all trying to get in the square where she's dancing and so it's an interesting contrast that the women then are are doing what women sadly sometimes do they're criticizing another woman because she's pretty and because their Hmm. husbands seem to be attracted to her. I actually just bought a shirt that um, says, uh, I'm as strong as the woman next to me, which is something that has really not happened a lot with women in the past. We haven't felt like, we haven't realized that putting another woman down doesn't help raise us up. And I think we're now kind of getting to this point where we feel we can really make a community and build each other up and be stronger together. Amen. <laughs> yes. It's it's interesting because the it's not just the men who do wrong in this opera. Yeah. Really. <laughs> yeah. And and I agree with you Evan that the fact that they're saying it's a good thing her mother is dead, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking and it lets us know right away that she is a young woman who doesn't have the guidance of a mother and the women who might have helped fulfill that role if her mother had died are not stepping up to the task in any way. Right. And this reminds me of the Pygmalion effect. That's like you can be a self-fulfilling prophecy for what other people expect of you. If they expect you to rise up, you can rise up. And if they think you're trash, then in their eyes, you'll kind of fulfill that prophecy regardless of what you do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you can apply that to 
all kinds of things. If you expect something, you ignore the things that don't confirm your hypothesis and you grab things and then shove it to make it fit in to your preconception. Which I, I actually really like the setting of what this of this opera that it's in a church because I feel like this often happens in like organized religion of people just if it doesn't fit my my idea of what is correct, then it can't be true. Yeah, and it can happen like with political affiliations. Mm-hmm. It can even happen with like what sports team you have you <laughs> choose to support. You know, we just we tend to put other you know, the other, who's the other? I'm putting them in a category because they're not like me. Yeah. Right. And here they are in this one little small valley. And yet Susanna, because she's a motherless child and fatherless, we will also learn. And she only has this older brother. She is the other in this little mm-hmm. tiny community. Yeah. How could she be made the other? And yet she is. Um, and, and right from the get go, she doesn't, it's, you feel like, oh, poor thing. She doesn't stand a chance with these women circling around her and the negativity right. and they're not going to give her a chance. They're not, but the men aren't either. Well, you mentioned that we're awaiting the arrival of the Reverend and he shows up early at this dance. Mm-hmm. Evan, you have a little experience <laughs> here with this fella. <laughs> what, what interests him when he shows up at the dance? Well, he, he loves the community. He's a preacher who's been to several communities. We can conjecture why he might have been in several different communities based on what happens later in the opera. Okay. It's, it's not just that he's getting run out of town. The Reverend Olin Blitch is not coming to become the pastor of a local church. This community is probably too small for that. Very common in those days. Yeah. That he was... I mean, to call him an itinerant preacher is probably not exactly the right phrase, but he held revival meetings. So that was what he Mm. would do. He Mm. would go from place to place to place, maybe stay Uh, for a week, maybe two. And these revival meetings were a feature of rural life in America. This is very common. In fact, um, quick story on my own (laughs) account, my great grandmother left a diary. It wasn't published, but it's shared among family members about her 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 youth and meeting her husband and she lived in a rural community and the big excitement this is how she opens her short autobiography the big excitement was going to a revival meeting mm-hmm. in these rural communities it was it was the thing to do it mm-hmm. was the thing to do and these itinerant preachers particularly someone like Olin Blitch who was i think pretty charismatic they would all go and so in, in my great-grandmother's autobiography, she it doesn't turn out like Susanna. <laughs> she, this is where <laughs> she <good. laughs> meets her future husband. This is where she meets my great-grandfather at one of these meetings. And it was a chance for young people to meet other young people mm. in a social setting. So it's kind of an, an amped-up church social, but with a point. So these r- mm. rivals, and the reason there was so much excitement around them is because he wasn't going to be there for a long time. And they all knew it from the start. Mm-hmm. And this is why it's so important to do your research and, you know, all, know all of this back history when you do an opera, because sure, like we could be excited that this new preacher is coming and that we're at a church social, but we should really know just exactly how excited we would be as a character to go to these things. And I think that changes how we would act in the scene. 
And it's so fun because the more you do a role, you pick up more tidbits each time that you do it and you can kind of, you can keep adding depth to Mm -hmm. your character. Yeah, these revival meetings, they were quite something. Well, this is not his show yet. He's just shown up to the church social. He's, He's a little earlier than they expected. And what does he do when he gets there? He does dance with Susanna. I mean, he he chats with the elders. He chats with the elders about her. About her, yeah. Yeah. And he says that he'll pray for her and for her brother. And then he goes to dance with her. And he takes his turn dancing, you know, which... It's very obvious, like, what his real intentions are. Not really to pray for her, but to... Pray on her. (laughs) Yeah. Do you think at this point those are his intentions? It depends on who, yeah. how you interpret it. But the way that I saw it, I definitely believe that he, this is not the first time, but I don't mm. think that his intentions coming in are to relive the things that he regrets in his past. But I do think that he knows that it's a possibility because he has done things like that in the past. Yeah. I think it's just kind of like an addiction. Like no alcoholic is, well, you know, sometimes you do like binge drink and things, but somebody who has an addiction to something will be like, Oh, well, I'm just going to do this, this one thing one time I can do just this much. I'm not going to step over the line. Yeah. He intends to be a good preacher. Like he thinks that he is and like he should be. Yeah. In fact, he, when he's talking with the other other the elders and their wives and the wives are saying catty things about her he says well I'll pray for her and they kind of catch themselves and like I'll pray for her I'll pray for Mm -hmm. her and and it's a little bit of that you know well bless her heart you know with the the cutting comment immediately before and after but he he actually tries to set them on a more Christian way of thinking a more forgiving way of thinking but he he can't help be drawn in to the allure of this young, innocent, joyful person the way the elders are. And in the back of our heads as audience members, I think we're afraid for Susanna. I mean, goodness knows we've dropped a lot of hints already, but <laughs> you watch this cold and you get an uneasy feeling. Yeah, and the music actually does a lot to help that too, especially as the opera goes along. I remember the first time I watched it, I was like, ooh. That is foreshadowing something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's the beauty of opera, isn't it? Yeah. That the music tells you stuff that you do not hear in the words. Yeah. And you know, and you know. Well, there's another character that we should mention here, Little Bat. (laughs) I love Little Bat. Uh, Little Bat is this boy who's, I think he's like a a year, a couple years younger than Susanna, but he's kind of obsessed with her. He just has a big crush on her, and they're just kind of like best friends, basically. They hang out all the time together. And is he a McLean? I think so, yeah. His his dad is one of the elders, and his mom is one of the main gossipers. Mm-hmm. And so they do not like that he hangs out with her, but they do all the time because they're best friends. Yeah, he's the only other young person you see right. in the opera because Susanna's brothers, uh, we're told, is in his early 30s at least. Yeah. So, yeah, Little Bat is is maybe not as uh, developmentally advanced as his as his age uh, mm-hmm. would indicate, and but he is probably maybe fifteen, sixteen. Yeah, 
Yeah, he is guileless as well. He says to Susanna, mm. yeah, my mom says I shouldn't be hanging out with you because you're no good. You're evil. <laughs> but right, they're so yeah. cute together. They're, they're good friends. It's so sweet. And while he's visiting her, she they're comfortable together, and she sings a beautiful song about the night. Let's listen mm-hmm. to a little bit of that one. But before we do, I know that you, Mariah, have prepared this role and thought about the role of Susanna. So what's going on with Susanna as she sings Ain't It a Pretty Night? She is, you know, it starts out with her admiring this like beautiful valley that she lives in and she really, really loves her home. You can tell that she really loves it here, but she really longs to get out. She's been here her whole life and she wants to go she doesn't even want to go far. She just wants to go to, like, the other places in Tennessee. Yeah, Memphis. She wants to just get to yeah, the other side of Tennessee. She, yeah, she says she wants to go to Asheville and Nashville and Knoxville, Yeah, you know? And she she really wants to go. But even at the end, she says, but I can always come back when I miss my home. Yeah. And one of the things that sort of tore at my heart is where she says, I wonder what it's like out there, and I want to see where the... The folks talk nice and they dress mm-hmm. nice, just like you see in the mail order catalogs. I mean, yeah, that's her only vision or exposure to things beyond the valley. Right. It's kind of a little reminiscent. I'm just thinking of this now of the song from The Little Mermaid, where she talks mm-hmm. about yeah. wondering what it would be like to have feet and wants to feel what a fire feels like. It's kind of like that. Just think them stars can all peep down and see way beyond where we can. They can see way beyond the mountains to Nashville and Asheville and Knoxville. How wonderful it's like. Yeah. 
You're listening to Opera for Everyone, a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone. It airs Sundays from 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL in Jackson, Wyoming. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast, where you can find a rich trove of past episodes. Stay with us. The second half of today's show is coming right up. Welcome to the second half of Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and I am joined today by Mariah Wilcox and Evan Dunn from Take the Stage, the Opera Podcast. My neighbors and partners in podcasting. It's wonderful to have you here. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. We're doing the opera, Susanna. But before we get started with the second half, I want to take just a moment to thank the artists involved in this recording that we're listening to today, which, by the way, won the Grammy for Best Opera Recording in 1995. We're listening to the orchestra and chorus of the Opera Nationale de Lyon, conducted by Kent Nagano. Susanna is sung by Cheryl Studer. Jerry Hadley sings the role of her brother Sam. And Samuel Ramey sings the role of the Reverend Olin Blitch. Sincere thanks to everyone involved in creating this beautiful music. And now it's time for the famous Opera Helmet Quiz. (laughs) (laughs) Longtime listeners to Opera for Everyone know that at this point we recap the opera up to the end of the first half. But I think that's going to be pretty easy today. It's just a a quick summary of what's happened so far, which honestly is more or less a scene setting for the drama that we're going to see unfold. So, Mariah, Evan, one of you like to uh, recap for us? Yes, we've met uh, the title character, Susanna. She's this young, innocent, even maybe naive girl. And uh, they're waiting for the the preacher who's going to come and do a revival in their town to come into town. And they finally meet him and he seems very congenial and uh, like a happy guy even Susanna really likes him and then in the next scene we get to see Susanna and her friend Little Bat just have a a conversation about how she loves home but she wants to move on to bigger things. Yeah she she knows there's a world out there besides the one that she's living in and she's She's 18 years old. She mm-hmm. sees in her future, I need to go somewhere. Not an uncommon thought for an 18-year-old to have. Right. Susanna was a really easy character for me to actually get into because I saw a lot of myself in her. I was also raised in the South in a very small town. Not oh. very small, but a small town. And I remember in high school being like, I want to go see all the big cities. I really, I love my home so much and I love going back to it, but it's never somewhere I've ever wanted to like live. So do you find that as performers that if you can find a point of connection with your characters, does it, does it make a difference to you? Absolutely. You have to find some sort of point of connection. Yeah, for every character you do, but the characters that like really speak to my heart are the ones that I portray the best as an actor. Yeah, I found myself relating to Susanna. We remember, I think most women do, what it was like to be 16, 17, 18, 19 years old. And it can be very confusing and everyone's story is different, but 
there's always a loss of innocence of some sort somewhere along the line. And it can be jarring or all the way up to the traumatic. Her innocence is so real and her innocence, it shines through in her behavior in the dance and it shines through in this song that she sings to her buddy. Mm-hmm. And she hasn't even realized yet, I I don't think that she is an outsider, that yeah, no. the rest of her community has kind of ostracized her in a way and that they judge her just simply because she doesn't have the same upbringing that they do. Right. I mean, Little Bat says, my mom says, you're, I shouldn't hang out with you, you're evil, but I don't think she takes him terribly seriously. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. She still likes to go to all of the socials and interact with all of them and doesn't realize how how very serious they are yeah and just at the end of this her her brother appears and hears a bit of of what's going on between the conversation of Susanna and Little Bat and the minute Little Bat spies her brother Sam Mm -hmm. he's scared of Sam he's just yeah (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) he runs out (laughs) yeah he doesn't want to have to deal with it he's in his 30s right and he scares little bat even though Susanna tells him you don't need to be afraid of him yeah he Mm -hmm. may drink a little bit but he's really a nice guy and I think anyone can make their own decision up about Sam but I actually think he he is a nice guy in a Mm -hmm. not so nice world Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. I agree his parents died too and as they they say in a in an unkind way in the social they're very poor they seem Mm -hmm. to survive on the fact that he traps and hunts animals yeah well sam wants to know how how was the dance sister (laughs) yeah she talks about how fun it was and it was such a good time and she met the preacher and yeah she's just delighted like she had a wonderful evening yeah although she did notice that the wives of the elders yeah, yeah. Looked askance at her. She she tells him that. But she she doesn't really care. <laughs> yeah, no. But she, she did doesn't. notice. Yeah. Well, and Sam even wants to know, was anyone courting you? She's 18. Somebody might be interested in her hand. She says, I ain't old enough for that yet. And Sam is like, yeah, you are. You're 18. <laughs> and she does talk about how the other elders in the church mm-hmm. wanted to dance with her and how she even danced with the new preacher, Olin Blitch. Yeah. But it's an underscoring of her total innocence. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. the concept to her that she would be, I mean, we would say dating, but that she would be courting with anyone. Like, are you kidding? That's that's for older people. Right, yeah. (laughs) And her brother's like, well, you know, you kind of look like a woman, so you maybe ought to think about this. It's just a a little hint that she's growing up and she's she, her head's not there but her brother realizes it maybe mm-hmm. it ought to be it's very gentle but we end this scene it's so beautiful with her saying oh don't go to bed it's nighttime everybody's exhausted don't go to bed what does she want from her brother <laughs> to sing the song that they sang growing up with her parents which is the jaybird song mm-hmm. it's just kind of a fun children's song and like we mentioned earlier this is where maybe some people don't love american opera because it's so it's just really rooted in appalachian tunes so this is just a, a fun little ditty yeah mm-hmm. sure yeah and yeah. it's it comes off like a child's tune but that's intentional because they're reminiscing yeah. on happier times that she says her father used to sing this to her it's quite like like a nursery rhyme, really. Yeah. It's very simple. It doesn't really 
it does have a meaning to it, but it doesn't really tell a story. Yeah, it's interesting. It is like a nursery rhyme in that there's this bird and we wink at each other and then mm-hmm. I threw a brick bat at him like, what? <laughs> <laughs> but nursery rhymes do that sort of thing. Yeah. So it's this innocence with this, this edge to it. Mm-hmm. One of the other things that I read is that, yes, this opera is infused with folk tune, but the ones who really sing the folk songs are just Susanna and her brother Sam. Yeah, the music again highlights the differences between Susanna and the rest of her community. Absolutely. I feel like now I need to interject that Carlisle Floyd was not only the composer, but also the librettist. Yes, yeah. So he's total creative control of this story. And also his own upbringing was as the son of a Methodist minister. Mm -hmm. And he went to these revival meetings in his youth. He knows a lot about this and he knows a lot about the feelings that all of this invokes in people, which I think is, is really interesting to think about that the composer's not doing it entirely from an external judging point of view like look at what these people do it's more like there was an experience yeah and to me in opera where you can really experience what some of the characters are going through or maybe one or two of the characters are going through that's one of the most moving things that opera can do for you absolutely shall we hear jaybird yes don't go to bed right yet son sing me the jaybird song on a hickory limb. He winked at me and I winked at him. I picked up a brick bat and hit him on the chin. Look at your little boy, don't you do that again. Oh, Jaybird sitting on a hickory limb. He winked at me and I winked at him. I picked up a brick bat and hit him on the chin. Look at your little boy, don't you do that again. opera for everyone and we're listening to the opera Susanna and we've just had a sweet little melody with our title character and her brother comforting themselves reliving the joy of their youth but they're in a different time now same place but different different time it's the next morning and Susanna is out and there's a little creek a creek that runs on her property and she's gonna take a bath in the creek and it's clear I believe in the stagings that I've seen you tell me about your experiences but it's it's clear that she is getting undressed to take a bath she's Mm -hmm. all alone out in the wilderness so it goes great right (laughs) (laughs) yeah so she's she's out and she says that she's been bathing there all spring never had any problems but that specific day the elders of the church are out looking for a place to do baptisms and they happen upon her but 
they linger and they kind of focus in on her, their bathing and their desire for her. And there's this awkward moment of silence where the mm-hmm. orchestra just plays some very like creepy music where they're all just watching her. And then when that stops, they all kind of like look at each other and point at each other and be like, we shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be doing this. What are we going to do? Yeah. Well, I feel like this is a case of the best defense is a good offense. Mm -hmm. They start being accusatory towards each other, but then they realize in concert that there's someone else they can accuse and they all get out of trouble. Yeah. Yeah. So they turn it right around on her. And they go back to their community and say how shameful it is what she's doing and that she's basically seducing them. Yeah. So they're looking at her, each one in their own little fantasy world, as they observe this young woman bathing until they become aware again of their surroundings. And you're right, the the music really heightens that for you, the creepiness. But they've got a plan. No problem. We're elders of the church. We're good men. Everyone will know how good we are. And she's, everyone knows how evil she is. It's, it's what Evan mm-hmm. said earlier on. All these expectations are going to be fulfilled because that's exactly what they want them to be. Well, Susanna is completely unaware of this storm that's gathering around her. She gets out of the creek. The men have dispersed uh, after saying all sorts of horrible things about her. And she's just humming her merry tune. She's had a lovely bath in the fresh creek and she's going to go about her day. Poor child. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So they're having another kind of little church get together. Mm-hmm. And Susanna decides to go. But before she gets there, that's when all the stories about her are going around. Everyone knows now about her bathing. So she shows up to this church social, none the wiser. With her pot of peas to share. Yeah. Well, everyone has to bring a covered dish. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And they completely turn a cold shoulder to her and basically ignore that she's even there. And little by little, she realizes something's wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She tries to speak to each of them and they just ignore her. One of them eventually like looks at her and says, what are you doing here? Yeah, I think they say, you're not welcome yeah. here. Yeah, yes. And they say to each other, this is to me so awful. She's an instrument of the devil. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you're not welcome here. And she finally gets the message. I mean, this is her only community. Her brother is really a loner. He loves her. He's kind to her. But he doesn't do social things in groups. He's, I mean, who knows what the backstory is for him. Right. And he's often gone. He leaves for, you know, a couple of days at a time to go hunting. Right. Because they've got to eat. And then at least in our production, Mrs. McLean comes and grabs the peas that Susanna brought and she dumps them and says, I wouldn't touch them peas of hern. <laughs> oh no. Yeah, they're they're contaminated. Yeah. 
And we'd kind of laugh whenever they said that line just because it's, I don't know, it's kind of silly and it's so dramatic, but it's like, oh, it's just heartbreaking Mm -hmm. at the same time. Well, if you've ever shelled peas and she talks about how she shelled them and she cooked them, it's tedious work. Yes, (laughs) it is. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, peas are peas and sometimes peas are a metaphor. So (laughs) don't touch her. Right. Don't touch her. Well, Susanna's gotten the message that the whole town has turned against her, and she's run off, and her little friend shows up. Yep, so she's there wondering why they're acting this way towards her, and little Bat runs in and confesses that his father and mother forced him to tell a lie about how she seduced him and and slept with him which did not happen at all. And she's never, ever even thought about Little Bat in that way. Yeah, and she finds out about the initial them seeing her oh, bathing. Right. As, she kind of hears about all of this at once. Yeah, Little Bat fills her in on what she missed. Yes. So she realizes just how serious this is. Right. And Little Bat does explain why he said this lie about her seducing him. Yes. He's, he says that that he was plumb scared to death and that he felt like he had to say what he did. Yeah, he repeats it over and over. I was just scared. Susanna seems to be the brightest, happiest thing in his life. He goes to her for company and for fun and, and kindness, and he feels terrible because he knows he's done something wrong. But he lets you know that the pressure from all these adults was so great. I was just scared. I Mm -hmm. I didn't want to. I had to. And it resonates with some things I'd read about Carlo Floyd talking about that's what he remembers about revival meetings and being a child in them is that they were scary because there's all these people expecting a certain behavior of everyone there and particularly the unbaptized. I mean, they're looking for this baptismal crake because he's a reverend. He can baptize during this short period of time. So it it really, it's not like, oh, I can do it next month or the month after. There's, right. there's an imperative to get on board. And same thing, the, this, this, all these people descending together that they all have to get him to say something that fits the narrative that they have set up and he can't resist it. And this is maybe a time to bring up that the possible theme of McCarthyism that I don't know if Carlisle Floyd himself said that this is about McCarthyism, but there's definitely some good comparisons with cornering people in America that are assumed to be communists and how they were kind of forced to say and do things to protect themselves. And also that if you're accused of something, you're as good as guilty. Like you've done it. It doesn't matter because everyone is going to pin you down because they're all so scared of what might happen to them if they don't have someone else to blame it on. Yeah, that's true. I did find Carlisle Floyd speaking about this issue. (laughs) And it's interesting. He says, "I, I did write the work during the McCarthy years and I lived through those terrors at Florida State. An accusation was tantamount to guilt, just as you said, Mariah. We faculty had to sign a pledge of loyalty or lose our jobs. It affected me and formed me emotionally. And there it is in the opera. But I can't say I put it there. Mm. So he acknowledges it being there, but he's not saying that wasn't his intent. Or at least that's that's what he said to the person writing this down. 
Right. Sure. But it, he was so affected by it as a person that it maybe just slipped into his work. Wow. Yeah. And he acknowledges as much. It's, it was fascinating to read that and that, I mean, imagine as a teacher that you have to sign this pledge, but it wasn't just faculty members who had to do it. It was sure, yeah, all over in the mm-hmm. professions. It was a, a scary time. Yeah. Something also interesting that I just recently found is that he wrote Susanna at the same time that The Crucible was written, who was, it was also written by someone from Florida State. So they wrote it around the same time in the same place. And I just really thought that was interesting. And I had read that that when the president of the university, who had been supporting him in his efforts, finally read the libretto, and he's like, oh, no, 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 we can't do this. Right. (laughs) And Carla Floyd had to really say, oh, no, it's not about ogling over this beautiful young woman. It's about her innocence and the loss of her innocence Mm. and how that affects her. And... Ultimately, of course, the the show did go on as planned. Yeah. But even the opera itself could be misconstrued if you looked at it a certain way and perhaps even if you staged it a certain way. Absolutely. In fact, actually, there are several operas with this same sort of theme that are often staged in a different light. And Mm I, I really dislike it. You know, you have to do whatever your director wants you to do, but I really dislike it when when people do that, where it's, you know, it is the woman's fault and it is just all about the seduction and like wiles of of a feminine body. Right. Well, one of the operas that I instantly thought of when I was reading about this was one which was what 50 years earlier, Zalame by mm-hmm. Richard Strauss. Mm-hmm. And she's even younger in the story, yeah. but but mm-hmm. there's no there's not as sympathetic a treatment of Zalame, let's say, as there yes. is of Susanna. Well, I think it's time for us to get back to the story. And here we are with Susanna and Sam. And Sam's got some thoughts. Yeah, this is my favorite part of the opera, I think. Or it was my favorite part while performing to just sit back and listen. Because Sam gives the most amazing commentary about what is happening and how people are divided and they're hating each other. And there's one line that I particularly love. He says, they'll turn this valley into hell, meaning the the people of the church who are, you know, they think they're doing what's right, but causing this division is actually turning the valley into hell rather than into like a celestial place like they think it might be doing. Yes, and I have to tell you, I found another line the most poignant in that aria and the whole thing is full of poignant comments so I think you can pick and choose but when he's consoling his sister and away encouraging her to gain the experience that one gains heading into adulthood he says it's about the way people is made that's my favorite line too yeah Yeah. the line it's about the way people is made I reckon and how how they like to believe what is bad. And I I think that's really poignant because it's not, you know, and what is bad, but what what they believe to be wrong, you know? Right, and he continues. And this is still part of what I, I consider this phrase. He says, how short they are on loving kindness. It must make the good Lord sad. Mm hmm. Because I believe one of the reasons this is such a powerful opera is that all of these characters believe in the Lord and believe in the good that the Lord can do for them. And I think they're all sincere, including mm. 
the reverend who is right. put up to be most judged harshly by the audience. But I believe he is, and Sam is, Susanna, and even the judgmental elders and their wives. I believe they're sincere in their belief that they have a, a good relationship with the Lord, but, but it's all different for them. And I think yeah. Sam's really on to something here where he says... They like to believe what's bad, but they're short on loving kindness. Yeah, I think Sam understands that everyone's relationship with with the Lord, with God, is personal and different. And I don't think the people of the church really understand that. They think that it should all be the same. It's difficult in a small town setting, and I think... Yeah. I think you need someone like Carlo Floyd who has grown up in this context to be sympathetic to those folks and not just make caricatures out of them Mm -hmm. clearly he's making a point but he's not made he's not made caricatures out of them right so sam's aria it's about the way people is made i reckon and how they like to believe what's bad how short they are on love and kindness it must make the good lord sad they don't know it ain't what you feel that counts but what you do So instead they take it out on you It must make the good Lord sad Way out yonder somewhere The Lord's great heart must break At seeing how men treat one another And say they're doing it all for his sake it's a hard, hard thing for you to realize, I know, that people want to believe what's bad. And how short they are on love and kindness, it must make the good Lord sad. Well, that was Sam's aria finishing up Act One, and we're ready to open on Act Two. And we are still with Susanna and Sam. Susanna's suffering. She doesn't. She doesn't really like the way the townspeople are treating her. She's beyond offended at what's happened with Little Bat and what Little Bat has had to say about her. And she just wants it all to be over. How long is it going to last, Sam? Yeah, and Sam, you know, he kind of encourages her, let's just go make peace with the community. Head on over to the church and just confess of, you know, and just get it over with. And she's like, confess what? (laughs) Confess what? Yeah, indeed. (laughs) 
Yeah, she has nothing to confess. But she does end up, she decides to head on over to the church and she catches them in the middle of a sermon. Yeah. This, at the point when I was preparing this opera, this I realized at this point on the opening of Act 2 that even though Susanna doesn't know exactly how this is all going to play out, I really feel like she, in some sort of like spiritual like self-awareness, knows that something is about to happen and that it's not going to go well for her. Right, because it does take some convincing on her brother's part. And mm-hmm. you're wondering, why is her brother pushing her right. to go right now while the passions are high, while the judgment is strong against her? But he does repeat several times, I, I really don't want you to be alone here in our little cabin. I want you to be, like, mm-hmm. nothing's going to happen to you in a large group of people. Yes. Because he has to go away mm-hmm. and get food for them. And he has to talk her into it pretty firmly. Yes. And she still does not want to go. She only goes because she really respects her brother. Um, and she says at some point, like, I'm going to go. But if they say one thing, I'm leaving. Which sounds exactly like what a teenager would say. Right. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) She's 18. She's at this moment between she's a teenager, she's becoming a woman, but she's a very innocent young woman. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not going to (laughs) last. So she ends up at at the meeting. Yes. And Preacher Blitch is giving a sermon. He is trying to get them excited about donating money to the cause, get them excited about repenting of their sins. He tells them fiery stories about people that he knows who realized they should repent, but they were at the end of their days and it was too late. And he says, is it going to be too late for you guys as well? I know there's people out there who need to repent. Right, because fear is a powerful tool to encourage force conformity. I mean, that's how I'm seeing this. He uses fear because he says, I know they were damned. I know they're suffering in hell. And I'm thinking, well, how do you know that? Right. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right. And I think this, not to go too deep with this, but I think it comes back to McCarthyism is that kind of fear. If you're different from us, we're going to kind of surround you and and terrify you. And if we don't surround you and stop it, it will leech on over to us and damn us as well. And he says, send down the tongues of fire upon the heads of the damned till they won't have no peace except in thy cleansing blood. We thank thee, O Lord, for these good people and their offering to thy servant. and let Bring all the lost and wandering home to the fold. Send down the tongue of fire upon the heads of the damned till they won't find no peace except in thy cleansing blood. Amen, amen. So this scene that we're in right now with this preacher, he's got the whole congregation behind him. He's calling souls forward. He's expecting to have a lot more baptisms, a lot more people brought to the Lord, as he would say. But the one person he's really focusing on is this young woman, our title character, Susanna, who everyone thinks is a sinful young woman. She's not, but they think so. 
Yeah, and he ends up, he tells stories about other people and generally is calling repentance, and then the, the focus goes right into Susanna. And he basically calls her out in front of the whole congregation. And at first, she, you know, she has already decided she would maybe like to be forgiven. And so she stands up, starts going forward, and is kind of drawn in. But... There's an interesting part right there when it talks about Susanna wanting to go up and just get all of this over with, right? That's Mm -hmm. why she wants to be forgiven. And in the libretto notes, it says that Blitch fixes his gaze upon Susanna and then slowly into his eyes and face comes an expression of intense desire bordering on lust. And then it says his voice also reflects what is happening inside of him. So I think Susanna at this moment is maybe not even like, I want to get this over with, but she is in this terribly traumatic situation. I mean, it's traumatic already. And she sees him and feels some sort of connection to him, even though it's not a great one. It's not a good one. And she... It says that Susanna becomes transfixed upon the preacher and then starts to walk forward. And, you know, as they get closer and closer, the pressure builds and it gets to the point where she realizes that this is not good for her. Yeah. And she screams, no, no. I mean, it has it on a high C or something crazy. She sings, no, no, and runs away. And Blitch finishes the sermon hurriedly, and that's the end of the scene. Yeah, quick benediction, and we're all out. (laughs) Exactly. But I'll tell you what, we're all relieved when the benediction is called because it's over. It was an uncomfortable scene. Absolutely. This is where baritone's vocal cords bleed. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) yes. Every baritone I've ever spoken to who has done this role is like, this is the hardest scene I have ever sung in my life. So Blitch is especially grateful that it's all over. (laughs) (laughs) But okay, explain from a singer's point of view why it's so difficult. Well, it's very dramatic. You know, he's preaching loudly. He doesn't have a microphone. The chorus is singing a lot of the time. So he's having to shout, stage shout over top of the chorus. Plus, he's singing in such a dramatic way, you know, calling fire and brimstone. He has octave jumps or octave and a half jumps, sometimes almost two octave jumps up and down the bottom of the range. So it's just really exhausting. And the scene is probably at least 10 or 12 minutes long of just him screaming. So yeah, it's a lot. It's quite long. (laughs) It's it's a lot. Well, he only gets a little bit of a rest before we get to hear from him again. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) So... He's got to heal up that bleeding in the vocal cord. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the next scene is arguably the most famous aria from this show, The Trees on the Mountains. We just have Susanna by herself, and maybe, Mariah, you could talk to us a little bit about this particular song. Sure. So Susanna has run out of the church and run back to her little cabin. And she's just kind of sitting on the porch or sitting outside. And she recalls a song that her mother used to sing to her when she was a child as a lullaby before she slept. And it's quite a haunting 
lullaby. It talks about how the trees on the mountain are cold and bare because summer has left them. And it talks about how the baby fox is alone because his mother has left him in his den. And then it talks kind of oddly about a lover, a false lover who has left as well. And a lot of people assume that this was not just a lullaby that Susanna's mom sang to her, but is actually the story of like how Susanna's dad left them. It's powerful. Mm-hmm. It's one that, that stays with you, or if you revisit it again, it, it's inexplicably familiar. I, I <laughs> yeah. It is an extremely familiar tune, and it's quite a simple tune as well, but it's incredibly difficult to sing. You have to pop up high above the staff at like a piano, mezzo piano dynamic, which is quite difficult, especially for the type of singer that usually sings this role, which is like a young dramatic voice. So it's difficult to get up that high that quietly. But because it's a lullaby, it requires that. I don't even know what to say. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Uh, You know, as an audience member, we're not always aware of those sort of challenges that singers Mm -hmm. face. But it's nice to get that insight because when we hear these songs, we know that they get to us. And I think probably some of the, the difficulty that the singers may be just facing technically is also part of what's reading into the emotion of the song. Definitely, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think that a lot of times, because this aria is so difficult, they will cast Susanna as a lighter voice so that she can get up there above the staff quietly. However, if you move into the next scene with a smaller voice, it is not as powerful. She's a a character who demands a lot of of the woman singing her. Yes. Another lovely version of this song is by folk singer Rhiannon Giddens. She's actually the host of the Met Opera's podcast, Aria Code. Yes. And she has a version of this song that's, I, I just love everything that she does, but it's quite lovely. Yes. Let's listen to Susanna as she sings about the trees in the mountains. And I, and I dare say she thinks that things have gotten about as bad as they're going to get for her as she's singing this. The trees.
That was Susanna Zaria, The Trees on the Mountains. She's vulnerable, she's sad, and what's about the worst thing that could happen to this vulnerable and sad young woman at this moment? Is the preacher shows up and listens to her singing the end of the song, and he confronts her, you know, what are you singing? And she's just emotionally drained and she can hardly even talk to him. I mean, you can tell she's angry, but yeah, I, th- I think it's really poignant what you said right before we listened to the song, Pat, you said that she thinks that the worst that could have happened to her has already happened. And then I think the preacher shows up, she's very startled. And I think then she starts to realize that this isn't over and it's not going to be over for a long time. Yeah, it's it's creepy. It's it's creepy for the adults in the audience. Yes. <laughs> he He's trying to pressure her still to confess. He's trying to pressure her in the way he did in front of the public. He's trying to do it privately. Yeah, he says originally, oh, I'm just here for a social visit. And nobody believes that, obviously. And then he begins to pressure her. She tries to explain what has happened to her. And he just says that she's lying and she insists that she has no reason to lie, and he just won't believe her. Yeah, he's convinced that she's a sinful young woman, and I believe he is truly convinced that she has sinned. Yes. Because when he says, I'm a lonely man, Susanna, (laughs) right? Yeah, (laughs) and even, like, it also is good for him if she has already sinned, you know? Because then he's not... He knows that she's um, vulnerable and that she's kind of an easy target. Yeah, she's already been through a lot. Right, and then he says, will your brother be home tonight? I mean, do you just want to smack the man right there? (laughs) Absolutely. It's so awful. Yes, and at that point, too, she's... She finally is just like, you know what? What's going to happen is going to happen, and I can't stop it. And so she just really agrees to do whatever Blitch wants to do. And what I think is really sad about that is that I think that she thinks it's her fault because she she said she did not say no. Right, so that's like the conversation that we obviously have nowadays about consent, which is so important. So glad that we can finally have this conversation, but she doesn't kick and scream and bite him, but Obviously, she has not given consent, and then she feels guilty about it on top of that. And you know what else is interesting about this is Blitch coming into this. I I like to think that he really is trying to be a good person, and he... I do, too. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's much more interesting and relatable to an audience member to see someone who is trying to do right, but obviously is struggling. Yeah, I think that goes back to what Sam says about it's what people believe is right or wrong. Like he, Blitch, really believes that what he's doing is the best for the situation, you know? Yeah, and as an actor, if you judge your character, you're not going to play them well. You have to come to your character sympathetically because if you're in your character's head, your character isn't thinking about themselves, I'm an evil, horrible person. They think like, oh, I'm trying so hard. Oh, but I'm so lonely. And then they lead themselves and then they start manipulating other people. But it's not coming from, 
I'm a horrible person and I'm going to get what I want. Right. Right. I mean, all the evil characters, all the evil people in history think they have good rationale and good reason. Yes. And that's part of the reason why they are so terrible (laughs) is because they really believe that they are in the right when they are so obviously not. Well, because he's only looking at it from his own point of view. It's the empathy that's missing for this other person. Mm -hmm. Sure, exactly. And he's assuming things about her that are not true, that she is experienced, that she is the thing that the townspeople say she is. Exactly, yes. And that's what he discovers. He, He comes out of the house and ends up in the church singing this song as a prayer. This is now when he realizes that he has taken advantage of a really innocent person. So he sings this prayer. But it's interesting because even though he's so sorry for what he's done, there's still an edge of, I'm sorry because because of me. Like, I feel like now my justification for doing what I did isn't there. And so now I'm actually a bad person and maybe I'll go to hell. Yeah, it wasn't he's sorry that he's done this to Susanna. He's sorry that he, that he's done something wrong and he's afraid for himself. Yeah. Yes, it's the lack of empathy for the other person. Yep. He wants to be forgiven by the Lord for what he has done to her, just exactly as you say. Let's listen to a little bit of, of this repentance aria. To my plea for forgiveness, receive my confession, O Lord, and hear the words of my repentance. It's a horrible thing I have done. Forgive the weakness of my flesh, O Lord, and condemn me not to the eternal fire for my sin against thee and the woman. This is Opera for Everyone, and we're listening to Susanna by Carlisle Floyd, and we've just heard the Reverend Blitch asking the Lord for forgiveness for his terrible actions, and he moves from privately asking the Lord for forgiveness to addressing the community, the congregation who look up to him, and he has something to say about Susanna and what he has said about her publicly and what they have all said about her publicly. Yeah, he doesn't want to explain how he knows what he now knows about Susanna, of course, and he does not want to take any responsibility, but he tells the community that he basically received revelation from God that they were all wrong and that Susanna was actually innocent and that they needed to ask for her forgiveness. Yeah, how does the community take this about face? (laughs) (laughs) Not very well. I love Mrs. McLean says, the devil works in queer ways when, you know, towards the preacher about what he's just asked them to do. Because Mrs. McLean, she knows what she knows. Yep. Their biases run deep, deep, deep. And then Susanna actually shows up. She's there from the beginning. Oh, yeah, she's there. And Preacher Blitch turns his attention to her after the church has left. And he says, you see, I tried to get them to do what's right. You heard me. I was trying to do what's right. And she's like, are you kidding me? 
that's <laughs> what you think is doing what's right. <laughs> yeah. And you can see her like her like mental endurance is starting to falter too because she starts laughing. Not quite maniacally, but just, you know, who would laugh in this situation? Well, she's a changed person. Absolutely. Yeah, what what he's done cannot be undone. And he's begging her personally for forgiveness. And she's a child, essentially, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, didn't well, I mean, maybe she's 18. Big deal. She's an innocent, I mean, though. Yeah. She's innocent. And he asks her to forgive him. And she says, I've forgotten how to forgive. Yes. And then interestingly, he, he ends this scene by saying, Oh, Lord, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me, which will resonate to, to those who know the Gospels. Comparing himself to the Savior being crucified, as if he were innocent like the Savior. Yeah. Again, he only has thoughts for himself. Yeah. So that's the end of that scene. In the next scene, we have Sam happily returning with a bag full of critters so that they can eat. And he's a little taken aback because he doesn't find the same Susanna that he left. Yeah, he quickly realizes that something is wrong. She doesn't seem to be happy to see him. And he was worried about her when he left because he had left her knowing that she was going to go to the church to ask for forgiveness. And he asked her what's going on. And she explains to him what happens. And he is... I mean, just explodes with anger. I think she almost is so defeated that she doesn't understand how angry he actually is. Yeah, no, she doesn't. And he says, I could go kill Blitch. And she's like, yeah, whatever, and kind of goes out to make dinner because she doesn't realize how serious. Well, he also, I mean, he comes back from hunting drunk. So... Yeah which she asked him specifically when he left not to do. But we didn't and believe that he was going <laughs> to Right. <laughs> he was going right. to agree to that. <laughs> so he comes back. This scene is really important I think for Susanna's character development because Sam was the last person who believed her, who like hadn't left her side. And so not only did he go ask her to basically lie and repent, which is betraying to her, but then he comes back drunk as if he doesn't care. Yeah, and certainly Sam doesn't mean it that way, and he does love her desperately, but in his absence, things have gone so badly, and partly because of his absence. Right. Not something he truly could have known. Sure, yeah. But she's she's a broken, broken young woman. Yeah, and I'm sure that's why he's so furious, because he realizes that had he not left, like she asked him to, none of this would have happened. Yeah, so Sam disappears. He grabs his gun and goes off, and she doesn't really pay any mind because she goes about her business, fixes some dinner, and then she says, Sam, dinner's ready. Sam, Sam, you know, where are you, Sam? And then she realizes he's not there, and it starts to dawn on her, which this just shows even more strongly how much she really believed that she was in the fault for what happened because she didn't think that it would be serious enough for Sam to go grab his gun and go find Blitch, which is exactly what happened. And she hears a shot ring out in the woods and realizes at that moment that it 
has indeed gotten so much worse. And she even screams out to, to God, forgive me for whatever I've done to bring this misery on, on us all. It's just horrifying. Yes, she, she does take a lot of the, the blame on herself, but she's also, I think, she's been traumatized. I feel like she's been in a bit of a fog ever since oh, the night. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, she. there's no way she could really be emotionally stable enough to be thinking clearly at this point. Yeah, but we all know what happens when we hear the shot ring out. And Little Bat comes running to Susanna and explains to her how... They were baptizing in the creek, and Blitch was baptizing, and Sam shot him. And as Blitch was dying, he was praying for Susanna that she would forgive him. And all. And so everyone there at the baptism is thinking, oh, look at Blitch. He's such a wonderful man, because they are all assuming that Susanna sent Sam to kill Blitch. And they think, oh, Blitch is forgiving her. And Blitch is such a true friend that he would go down to his grave praying for Susanna. And meanwhile, the Baptism Creek, this place of innocence where she was simply taking a bath before she was spied on, it's all filled with his blood. Mm-hmm. I had never filled even thought of that. Filled with the actual sins Ugh. that happened in this opera. Right. So the congregation has seen this man die at the hands of Susanna's brother. And how do they respond? As a mob, they come literally with pitchforks. They're just telling her to get out of the valley. So they're singing, yelling at her to leave the valley, that if if she doesn't leave, that they'll kill her and they'll kill Sam as soon as they find him. And Susanna comes out with a gun. And at this point is laughing maniacally because she completely lost any innocence that she had Mm -hmm. and... Just her mental state is extremely deteriorated at this point. And she she tells them to get off her property, and if they ever come back, she will kill them. Right. And they do back off with the threat yes. of the firearm. Um, and the final thing that the congregation says to her, they'll come a reckoning time. There's mm-hmm. a higher court of justice. Mm-hmm. And you think, well, if that's not irony, I don't know what is. Right. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> What has she done, actually? And they think it's all her fault. Yeah. Oh, dear. Yeah, so then the mob ends up leaving. And Little Bat is still hanging around. And this is actually, this is actually my favorite part of the opera. Because Susanna realizes that Little Bat is still there. And she is so, I mean, immediately filled with like rage and anger towards him. That she starts to seduce him. Which is what really you can tell from the way Little Bat reacts that he's wanted this for a long time. And so he goes up to her and right before he goes to kiss her, she slaps him across the face and starts laughing again. And he runs off and that's how the opera ends. I love this ending because I, a lot of people that I've talked to say, oh, well, Susanna should have killed herself, which happens in a lot of operas, and that's fine. (laughs) But I feel like this is so powerful because she stands up for herself. I mean, she's emotionally defeated right now, but she has decided that I'm going to live, and I'm going to live here in this home. This is my home, and I'm going to stand up for it. Yeah, that is very true. Well, honestly, 
When I first saw this, I saw Little Bat at the end, and I thought, well, oh, Little Bat, so she will have one friend in the world. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, the only possible friend I might have left in this world. So she'll have one friend. But the kindness draws him closer and closer until she hauls off and slaps him hard. Mm-hmm. And he goes away, and you think, nope, she's on her own out in this cabin in the woods, and she won't get into her town again and she's probably never going to get into those towns that she was singing about right where the people dress pretty right which is it's so sad like that's so depressing to me that she really like never like she like sorry (laughs) i like think about like if this had happened to me like i would just move towns but that it's so difficult for her to do that like there's no real way that she could actually do that no it's it's she's just been destroyed it's very sad yeah well i'd like to thank you both for joining me all that we've talked about this opera your work and your wonderful podcast take the stage opera thanks evan thanks mariah thanks for joining me on opera for everyone thank you for having us thank you pat it has been so fun to relive this opera together another episode of Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright, joined today by Evan Dunn and Mariah Wilcox of Take the Stage, the opera podcast. If you've enjoyed our show and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast. Opera can be challenging, but everyone loves a good story, and a story set to music is even better. Our mission is to make opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable because we believe opera is for everyone.